Well, good morning, everyone, and it's great to be here together and to be studying the book of Revelation together. And last week, as we began our series in the book of Revelation, Pastor John made it very clear that the book of Revelation is primarily a book about Jesus Christ. And as we think about it, the Bible as a whole is a book about God, and the book of Revelation is no exception to that. However, the book does give a special emphasis to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus Christ. And what a better way to prepare our hearts for communion that we'll be sharing at the end of today's message as we think about and we reflect upon and take a deep look into the person of Jesus. And that's what we'll be doing today in the passage that we'll be looking at in Revelation chapter 1. But before we open up the Word of God, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for giving us this book. Lord, as we look at this, we realize this is a letter that was written to real people at a real time in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials. And Lord, we are not exempt from trials in our lives. We're not exempt from suffering. And I pray that as a church family, as we go through the book of Revelation together, Lord, that we would set our eyes upon Jesus Christ and that we would be encouraged by the word of God in this letter that was given to us through, from you through the Apostle John 2,000 years ago. And Lord, the truths that were true then are so true of us today. And Lord, I pray that this series, as we dig into your word, would change our lives. Help us to know you better and help us to grow together in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning by taking a look, and I want to look at one, actually a verse and a half that's inside of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, because as I look at this particular verse and a half, it puts a special emphasis on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that I thought was worth for us to take a look at and read twice. So if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to be looking at the second half of verse 5, including then into verse 6. It says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, as we're thinking about communion, what better way to celebrate communion by looking at this verse, and we'll be coming back to this several times in the message today, but the point where he says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. See, that's what communion is all about, is reflecting upon the work of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus upon the cross, and the fact that he bled and died for us for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with him. And it's our hope that as we go through this series on Revelation with the special focus on Christ, that it is going to grow your love for him, strengthen your faith in him, and build your confidence in him as you go through life in this very broken and fallen world. Because that's the reality of what we're in. And just like these Christians 2,000 years ago, we live in a broken and fallen world. We see it all around us. And John wrote this letter to encourage these saints in their faith in the midst of what they were going through. And today, it's just as appropriate for every single one of us here as we read this and study this together. 
Well, I love the way Sinclair Ferguson described this in a quote that he gave about the book of Revelation when he was talking about Jesus and suffering in the book of Revelation. And he said about Revelation, it is not a puzzle to be solved, but a vision of Jesus to strengthen you in trial and uncertainty. That a great way to say it? This book, this letter, the letter of Revelation wasn't given to us as some puzzle that was to be solved, but he gave it to us so that we would see Jesus in this book and be strengthened in times of trial and uncertainty. That's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks and months ahead as we go through the book. But now let's read today's passage in all of its entirety. We're going to be reading chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. See, I mentioned that the Bible is a book about God, and wow, what a description here as we get into this series on Revelation, and we see that this letter is from God, and we see God displayed in all of His glory as we look at this. Last week, John did a great job sharing with us that this is a letter. This was an actual letter that was written to specific people at a specific time, and we see this here in, in verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. See, now, by the time that he wrote this book, the Apostle John was an elderly man. And as we think about John at the time, clearly, he was an elderly man. He was the last of the remaining apostles of Jesus' actual apostles. And he was a, a very pastoral person by nature. And by this time, he had already written several other letters that were recognized as inspired by God and distributed to the churches throughout the world at that time. And what we would have seen is, as this letter written by the Apostle John, it would have been given immediate authority when you take all of those things together. You see, I, I think that John, in his old age, was stepping back and he was saying, I'm seeing all of my people, all those that I love, all of these churches that we have started, and I'm watching them suffer and be persecuted and face trials. And through God's inspiration, he's writing a letter of them of encouragement. See, it goes on, it says, to the churches in Asia. Today, we think about Asia. I think we think of China, Japan, and Vietnam, but, you know, places like that in Southeast Asia, Asia all around. But see, what this was written to, these were seven churches that were located in the, in the Roman province of Asia. At the time, that's what the Romans called this section. It was called Asia. It's, today, it's what's found in Western Turkey. And this book was addressed to seven literal churches that was in that area. But what we find is, I think, it's, there's very special significance given to the number seven in the Bible. See, the number seven in the Bible is, um, 
it's found, and by the way, the number seven is not only found here talking about these seven churches. We're going to find the number of seven throughout the book of Revelation. But you see, what God was doing is he was giving this letter to these seven particular individual local churches. But the number seven has a symbolic meaning as well. Because in scripture, the number seven means fullness, completeness, or perfection. And when we see that kind of symbolism, what it's saying is, yes, the letter is written and it pertains to these seven local churches. But symbolically, in all of its perfection, this letter is good for all time to all churches of Jesus Christ, then throughout these 2,000 years since, and to as long as the church is on earth before the coming of Jesus Christ, this message is applicable to all of us. And it's applicable to us today as well. I think that's the, what the message that John was trying to say here as he particularly chose the number seven and seven churches to write to. Now, as you look at verse four, as it goes on, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. You see, John here is extending grace to his readers. Now, the letters to these individual churches, what we're going to find in chapters 2 and 3, is that each of these seven churches that John addressed were clearly going through suffering and persecution. You go through extra-biblical sources as well, and you look back about the first century church, and it's very clear that they were suffering, they were being persecuted, they were facing trials, and this is who this book is addressed to, a place and a time where grace and peace from God were desperately needed. Now, I want to talk a little bit about grace because grace, the biblical idea of grace, is that it's an unmerited response from God to sinners. So you think of grace, it means when we say unmerited, it means that we don't earn it, we don't do anything to deserve it, but God, in His love, on His initiative, extends grace to us as sinners so that as we receive the grace of God, we are transformed. See, what we, we as sinners are transformed and we no longer are unrighteous sinners in the eyes of God. But as we accept God's grace in salvation, we're transformed so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. And it's a free gift from God that we do nothing to deserve. Now, John goes on, he says, grace and peace... Think of peace as the New Testament equivalent to the Hebrew word shalom. And what we find is it centers on the right relationship with God belonging to believers as a result of the grace of God. You see, it's a cause and effect relationship between grace and peace. God first reaches out to us in grace and gives us the gospel touches each of our hearts to the point where we respond in faith. It's faith alone in Christ alone. And as we respond in faith as sinners, God transforms us. And as we are transformed from who we used to be in darkness into light, as we are transformed from unrighteous to righteous in the moment of salvation, we also now are given the peace of God. It's a cause and effect relationship. Grace comes first. And as we go in, come into a right relationship with God, we're now giving the, given the peace that only God can give. And so that's what John is here. He's, he's, he's wanting for all of us. He wants us to experience 
that peace that only God can give. I remember when I took um, Old Testament prophets in seminary, took it from a, a professor named Charlie Dyer, and one of the things that stands out, I just must have heard it a thousand times in that class, is the idea in prophetic literature of already and not yet. See, last week, Pastor John mentioned that one of the aspects, one of the genres of revelation is that it's, a prophet, it's prophetic literature. And when we think about the prophets as they wrote their letters and as they gave their prophetic messages, there was always an already not yet component to it. Let me explain that. The already means it was applicable for the readers, the original readers in their time and day. Many times a lot of the prophetic messages were fulfilled in the short term, but then there was an ultimate fulfillment that went years ahead. So even today, we can look at some of the messages in the Bible, some of the prophetic messages, and we can see how they were already fulfilled at some point in time in the past in some way, but yet we look to the future and there's a not yet aspect to them as well. Let me give you an example. Say the kingdom of God. You might say to us, are we living in the kingdom of God? The answer to that is absolutely yes. You see, if you think about, well, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, it's God's reign through God's people in God's place. Now, when Jesus came to the earth in his earthly ministry, Jesus commenced the kingdom of God on earth. God himself broke into history, came to the earth, came among us, and really established the kingdom of God. But you see, down the road, there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God as well. You see, right now, what we see is kind of like a dim reflection of what the kingdom of God one day is going to be. So yes, we're in it, but one day all sin and suffering and trials and sickness, is, they're going to be gone. And we're going to be living in direct communion visually with our Savior Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God. I think as we look at peace in the Bible as well, what we can see, and here we have John talking about grace and peace, is that the peace of God is available to all of us today who are believers in Jesus Christ. It comes to us by God's grace as a result of God's grace. But think one day what that peace is going to be like as we enter in, in our glorified state, into glory in the God's presence where there's no more sickness, no more sin, and we'll be experiencing the ultimate peace that God has for us. See, for believers 2,000 years ago that were suffering and being persecuted, or for us today as we're in the midst of trials, these are things for us to hold on to, that God has freely extended to us to His grace, and He's extended His peace to us as well. And we can taste it today but we can look forward ultimately to what it's going to be like down the road in just, I guess we can say, in amazing grace. Now, as we go on, one of the things I also want to remind us as we think about God's grace is that what we deserve as in our sinful selves, our sinful sin nature, is God's wrath. See, every one of us, we don't deserve God's grace in any way. What we deserve because of who we are in our sin nature, we deserve the wrath of God. But you see, God reached out and extended through the gospel message of Jesus Christ, His grace. And folks, we need His grace and we need His, we need His grace for salvation. But don't we need God's grace and peace every day as we go through this broken and fallen world? 
And that's so much the point of what the book of Revelation is bringing to us. Now, if you go back and we look at verse 4, John writes, grace to you and peace. But notice that that grace and peace is not coming from the Apostle John. It says, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and gives that description and some um, descriptions of Jesus himself. See, this grace and peace is not coming in any earthly way from the Apostle John. It's coming from God himself. And not only that, but what we see here, it's coming from all three persons of the Trinity. See, most commentators, not all, but most theologians look at this as a beautiful Trinitarian passage that the grace and peace of God is coming from all three persons of the Trinity. One of the reasons I think that God, that, that God inspired John to write it this way is if believers, and we're, we're in a time of suffering as well, and you know, I, I, we, as believers in Jesus Christ, one of the things we can be thankful for is this is not as good as it gets, folks. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to be so much greater than anything we've ever imagined. And for these writers here, what John was telling them was, as you go through hardship, you'll never encounter anything that God is not able to solve. You're never going to have a need that God doesn't have the resources to meet. And as you go through trial and hardship, you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit right there with you. Now, I want to go back and I want to look at these descriptions of the Trinity in this passage. First, it refers to Him who was and who is and is to come. I think that definition, that description of God there reminds us a little bit of the name of God that we see at the burning bush in the Old Testament. Who did God say He was? Tell them, I am has sent you, right? Now, I will say though, Jesus Himself used that same description of Himself where He mentioned, I am. And they were going to stone him because of declaring that very name of God for his divinity. But you see, as we look at this passage and the way it's written right here, in this essence, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come is referring to the Father as we look at this passage. We go on to the second description. And what it says here in the next description is it gives us a description of the Holy Spirit because it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. See, there's that number again, the number seven. And you see, if we think of the number seven, referring to perfection and to completeness, what it's showing us here is as the Holy Spirit, who's completely perfect, completely holy, he's God himself, this is a reference symbolically, the perfect number seven was showing all of that perfection attributed to the Holy Spirit. It's a very unusual way that the Bible here, as in the book of Revelation, describes the Holy Spirit. But this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And notice the order. It goes from Father to Holy Spirit to Son. Normally when we see the Trinity mentioned, what do we see? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason I believe is because the book is giving a special emphasis to the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the verses that follow verse 5, we see that it just flows in a doxology. A doxology is a short praise to God. We see a doxology flowing that's giving all of this worship to Jesus Christ, the Son. And that's why we see Jesus listed third here. But as we look at the description of Jesus, it says... And from Jesus Christ, in verse 5, 
the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a description as we see this. What I'd like to do right now is to take a little bit deeper look at this title, each of these titles of Jesus, but start out with the faithful witness. What exactly does John mean by calling Jesus Christ the faithful witness? Well, first off, Jesus was the perfect witness from heaven, God himself coming down into the earth to reveal the Father to a sinful and broken world in all of his glory and all of his perfection. Jesus perfectly represented the Father in his earthly ministry. So we see in that sense that Jesus was the faithful witness. However, I also want to say that this title, faithful witness, is a term that applies to each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a couple examples in Scripture to show you what I mean there. But what we're going to find is that the Greek word that's here translated witness, at least in the New American Standard, you'll see it's translated as the faithful witness, comes from the Greek word martus. Now, the Greek word martus is the same word that we in the English get the word martyr from. So it can be translated martyr, can be translated witness. We're going to see in a little bit. It also could be translated testimony, and I'll explain what that means. But I mentioned this can be applied to us as followers of Jesus as well. Jump ahead, and we're going to meet a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. So we look at Revelation 2, verse 13. It says here, I know where you dwell. This is in one of the letters that he wrote to the church in Pergamum on this one. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and how you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Well, you might be saying, Bob, why are you pointing out this faithful servant Antipas? But if you notice, it says, in the days of Antipas, my witness. There it is again. It's the Greek word martorios. Now you might ask, martus in this, in this case, you might ask, well, who was Antipas? Well, Antipas had lived, and by the time of John writing this, he had been martyred in a very cruel way. Um, church history shows us that Antipas was actually put inside a hollowed out bronze bull, a life-size bull made of bronze. He was put inside of it, and they built a fire around it and actually killed him inside through the fire in the side of this bronze bull. And it would have pa- that, that had passed on to the point where the Apostle John had heard how one of his fellow believers in Jesus Christ was martyred in such a f- horrible way. And here Jesus himself in this letter refers to Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. You see, he was a witness for Jesus Christ. I want to give you another example. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. Let me read that for you. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. Now, if you look in verse 11, it says here, they overcame Satan. By the way, as we read this verse, and this passage is what we're going to see, it's a cosmic battle between Satan and his followers and the angels of God. We see the angels of God overcame them. But you know what, folks? You and I appear in this in verse 10. When it talks here about those who overcame, it talks about the brethren, those who have been faithful to Jesus Christ. That's us. And it goes on and says in verse 11, they overcame Satan because of two things, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That word testimony is the same Greek word martorios in this form, which means their testimony or their witness, and they overcame him by what? The gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's what it's referring to here when it talks about their testimony. It is the gospel. The only way that we can overcome Satan is through the blood of the lamb, which apparently it's not a separate thing. It's not like we can overcome Satan. We can be freed from our sin by anything but the blood of the lamb. Don't as I mentioned, there's two things that are listed here. There's actually only one. The only thing that brings us forgiveness of sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever been forgiven of their sins, receiving salvation apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So when he goes on and he says that they've over overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the test their testimony, their testimony was the gospel. Their testimony was saying that I have recognized my sinfulness and I have turned to Jesus Christ alone in the blood of the Lamb for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the testimony that overcomes the power of Satan. And you see, as we look at Jesus Christ being called the faithful witness, we too are faithful witnesses when we have overcome Satan by trusting in the blood of the Lamb. We're going to be talking more about the blood of the Lamb as we enter into our time of communion in just a couple minutes. But as we go on, we go back to verse 5. Jesus was given another title in chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the faithful witness in the next description says, the firstborn of the dead. Now, by this time, obviously others had died already and been raised again. We can think about Lazarus. We can think about Jairus' daughter. We can even think about Old Testament saints who were raised and they were in Abraham's bosom. But see, the difference being, Jesus Christ experienced death, he rose again, and never faced death again. And Jesus was the first one to enter into heaven in his glory, and the Old Testament saints who had been in the place where we see in the, in the New Testament refers to Abraham's bosom, Jesus led a train with him and Jesus was the firstborn, the first to enter into what we would consider heaven today. You see, he never faced death again. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead. The next description of verse 5 gives to Jesus, he calls it the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, notice here, there's no exception. 
It doesn't say Jesus Christ is ruler over the kings who followed him, the kings who submitted to him, the kings who surrendered to him. It just says that Jesus Christ is ruler of the kings of the earth. Think today. We have right now, we have Joe Biden as president of the United States. We have Vladimir Putin as president of China. We have Xi Jinping as president of, of, I'm sorry, Vladimir Putin is Russia. And we have Xi Jinping as the president of China. Three of the greatest superpowers in the world today. Folks, do you know who is ruler over all three of these men? Jesus Christ. You see, at one point in time, every ruler, the three I mentioned, and every ruler of all time, history past or history forward, is going to fall down and worship Jesus Christ. Some of them will worship him because he's their savior, and some of them are going to fall down and recognize that they never put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, everybody, all of the rulers of the earth are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, think about if you were a a saint, a believer in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, you'd have been living... John's, John, the recipients of John's letter were members of the Roman Empire. They were governed by godless and ruthless Roman emperors. And I'm sure that those emperors, in looking in history back, had never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Little did they know that they were being ruled and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And as those saints received this letter and they saw the power of Rome, John is reminding them, that Rome itself is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember, I I shared this about 10 years ago. I looked back to see, it was a story that I shared in a sermon about 10 years ago. And um, I had the opportunity, really it was a privilege, to be able to go to a a dinner and a forum at the White House. It was back when um, George W. Bush was president. And it was an executive forum that was being held there. And one of the the men at the church I was at in Doylestown was the um, executive vice president of Tyco International, multi-billion dollar corporation still around today. And um, he invited me in as his guest. So I kind of went in there riding on his coattails. And uh, we went into this forum and they they had us sit down at tables. We hadn't had a chance to meet who was at our table yet. And they were round tables and we sat down and um, Rick Santorum was at the microphone at the time. And he just said, would you go around in circles at your table and introduce yourselves to one another? So we started out and actually the guy immediately to my left started with the introduction. So I ended up being the last one being introduced at my table. So the guy to my left introduces himself as the president of the U.S. Olympic Committee. So then the next guy sitting immediately next to him introduces himself as the CEO of Pepsi. And it starts going around the table, and I suddenly start to realize as um, a pastor from Doylestown, Pennsylvania, my resume was not quite as long as theirs. And I started feeling a little bit small at the table. So by the time it got around to me, the, all these things, you know, we, all the muckety-mucks were, you know, at the table. And I'm thinking, wow, what am I going to say? And so I said, well, um, I'm a, I introduced myself as Bob Travis. I said, I'm a pastor from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And then I just realized that I was a little out of place. So to add a little lightness to the moment, I said, and my boss happens to be the ruler of the world. And um, got a little bit of a laugh to that. But as as we think about it, we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, have no reason to ever be intimidated or feel inferior to any ruler on this broken planet. 
Because every single one of them is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And one day, we're all going to bow to him. You see, the fact that Jesus Christ rules over all of the rulers of the world, all of the events of the world, should revolutionize the way that we watch the news, the way that we read the internet, and the way that we live out our lives. Because we are followers of the King of Kings and the ruler of all the rulers of the world. You see, the fact, as we go through the book of Revelation, I think one of the most important points to this book is that Jesus wins. And that has never been in doubt. That's why this is a book about Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned that the, like a doxology, a praise of worship to Christ, flows in this next section. I'd like to read right from 5b to the end as we prepare ourselves from, for communion. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. See, as we look at that doxology, what it starts out with, and what I love to see here, it says, to him who loves us. Picture Jesus in all of his glory, all of these terms that we have seen, the ruler of the, of the kings of the earth, the one who'll be coming on the clouds, and the alpha and the omega loves you. What a precious promise that is. And that's something that can never be taken away from you. Now, I want to say is if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as, as your Savior, you have been freed from your sins by his blood. It's one of the precious promises that it gives us here. And what we find out is that Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, was also the sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrifice that was given on our behalf. Jesus went to that cross because of your sins and my sins. The same person that in all of his glory was the king of kings was also the sacrificial lamb of God. And the only thing, folks, that can free us from our sins, tells us right here that we've been set free from our sins, the only thing that can do that is the precious blood of the lamb. See, as we celebrate communion together this morning, that's what we're reflecting on. Jesus Christ, he could have called a legion of angels. With one word, he could have defeated all of his opponents. He'll do it one day. But that very same Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, because he loves you, went to that cross and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be in a right relationship with God. See, I think that's what verse 4 was talking about. God's grace, God's amazing grace that saved sinners like you and me who were deserving of nothing but the wrath of God our Savior went to the cross because He loves you. See, that's what we're going to be remembering in a few moments when we celebrate communion. And as we think about that, we didn't earn it. 
but the righteousness of Jesus Christ was given to us. And verse 7 gives us a reminder that this cost Jesus Christ so dearly. It says in verse 7, even those who pierced him. You see, one day, and those who actually pierced the side of Jesus, the Roman soldiers, they've already recognized their mistake. They've already recognized most likely that it was too late for them if they have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because it goes on here and it says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. You see, those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ are going to celebrate his return. Those who have waited too long to recognize their sinfulness, to recognize their need for a Savior, to recognize that Jesus Christ was the precious Lamb of God. For those who waited too long, one day when he returns, they're going to mourn that they never made that decision to trust in Jesus Christ. But verse 7 reminds us that Jesus suffered his side was pierced. The creator of the universe was crucified, gave up his body. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. One other description it gave in verse 6 says, He made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You see, Exodus 19.6 tells us that Israel was made to be a kingdom of priests for God, but they failed. They never fulfilled it. And now we see here that ultimately they didn't receive the blessings that God had given to Abraham. And today, the church of Jesus Christ is now where God rules. It says here, you have been made a kingdom, priests. You see, God now reigns where? In our hearts. You see, we now have access to God. In the Old Testament, it was the priest who went to bring access between God and the people. Today, we have direct access to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we today function and we've been made priests. See, it's a beautiful thing for us to think about. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 gives a great description of the priesthood of all believers under the new covenant. I'm not going to look at it today just for the sake of time, but if you want to look at that, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. But right now, as believers in Jesus Christ, as priests for God, we enjoy unhindered access to God. We enjoy the fact that we can proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. See, that's what the priests were meant to bring. They were meant to mediate between God and his people to be the, the, God's rule on earth. And today, as followers of Jesus Christ, as priests of God, we proclaim the good news, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We are God's representative to represent him to our generation today. And that's what the church is. It's a collection of believers that are worshiping God and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins through the Lamb of God, through Jesus Christ. Now, the doxology then gives us a wonderful proclamation. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And he goes on after that and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. See, the beginning and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. See, what God is saying here was, I reigned in the beginning, I will reign at the end, and I continue to reign in between. You never have to doubt it. 
Let's look at what we're facing today with COVID going on here around. We see the brokenness of our world. We see the suffering. We see all the things that are taking place and we're reminded that we live in a broken world desperate for the peace of God. But we're reminded that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As we move into our time of communion, I just want to remind us and take a time of quiet reflection as we think about, and, and John brought this up, Pastor John, last week so well as well, of the glory and the exalted position that Jesus holds. See, we saw so many different titles today, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And as we take a moment of quiet reflection, I want you to think about this. The only sins that you can defeat are forgiven sins. What do I mean by that? I had, a great, I had an opportunity to talk to a man in our church this week, and we were talking about just a struggle with sin. And I reminded him that if he tries to overcome that sin on his own effort, he's going to fail miserably. The only sins that we can overcome are forgiven sins. What do I mean? We need to set our eyes back upon the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that God in His grace came to us as sinners, and He went to that cross and died for us. And as we accept the forgiveness of God, and as we come into a right relationship with God, what happens? On the inside, we are transformed from sinners into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ, as we recognize that we are filling our lives, trying to overcome sin, trying to succeed, trying on our own, that what we need to do is we need to let go. And we need to recognize that Jesus Christ has already won for us. So that's what the gospel is, that we are utter sinners and that Christ is a great Savior and He has already overcome for us. And as we then allow God to change us on the inside, then our behavior on the outside can change. See, and we saw today that we can only overcome by two things, the blood of the Lamb and our testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we take this quiet moment of reflection, what I want you to think about is how the body of Jesus Christ was broken for you. See, this time of communion is meant for believers in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins, take this time to reflect on what He did for you. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to think about that. Reflect on what this precious Savior has done. And don't delay by giving your life to Jesus Christ. But as we take this quiet moment of reflection, picture Jesus in all of His glory, His body being broken for you so that you could have a right relationship with God. Let's reflect on that for a few moments.
Lord, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the firstborn of all creation, we think about the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, having gone to the cross, suffering a humiliating death, enduring the, the mocking, enduring the pain, enduring the suffering, bleeding, having his body broken so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. Oh, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that, Lord, our sins are forgiven. They're covered by the blood of the Lamb if we just trust in you and you alone for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this sacrifice that was made for us, Lord, when we were lost in our sins. And as we come to you in faith, we become a child of God, completely forgiven. Thank you. Amen. Now let's share in the bread together. The bread represents the body of Christ. And as we eat this together, we're reflecting and remembering what Jesus has done for us as his body was broken on our behalf. Let's share. And now in response to God, as we think about the cup that represents the blood of Christ, we are going to sing our praises to God together as we celebrate and we remember what Jesus has done for us by singing our praises to him. After the worship team leads us, I'll come back and we'll share in the cup together. alone my hope is found he's when like my strength my song this cornerstone solid crown firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled and striving cease my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness For by the ones He came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on Him was laid Here in the death of Christ I In the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from 
to think that we've been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thought. And Lord, to know that you love us that much, that you would die for us, that you would experience the wrath of God that I am so deserving to experience. And the only reason, the only way that I could avoid the wrath of God was through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for loving us this way. We thank you for going to that cross. We thank you for, believe, for bleeding for us and to ex, for experiencing the wrath of God so that we could be spared from it and that we could be called children of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's share in the blood of Christ together. And we, as, our, as we end our service today, let's go throughout this week remembering the mighty Savior that, that loves us so very much and that we've been called to be His priests and to let the world know about the blood of Jesus Christ, but that they can be in a right relationship with God because Jesus loves them so much. Amen.